Welcome to the Love, Sex and Intimacy podcast for women who want to experience intimate relationships and sex that are pleasurable and passionate, happy, thriving and deeply fulfilling. With my very special guest experts guiding lights and pioneers in their specialist areas, we'll be breaking down the myths, exploring the difficult stuff, the good stuff and seeing what's possible for love, sex and intimacy at this time of rapid change. In these candid and intimate conversations, I'll be bringing you the best of sex and relationship education, full of practical ways to support and inspire change in your intimate life. I'm your host, Sarah Rosebright. Whether you're curious about what's possible or you're already committed to exploring, I'm so happy you are here. Welcome to the 20th episode of my podcast and a juicy one it is too. I can't believe I'm here at 20 episodes and so thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for listening and thank you for all the feedback. I'm so touched by the feedback I get every single week from women who share what a difference the podcast is making and how it helps them just to feel better about themselves or inspires them to take action all sorts of different things so keep that feedback coming today I'm joined by Susan Coates a sex and relationship coach um, from Denver and I love Susan she's so grounded in what she shares but also with heaps of passion and heaps of playfulness and we talk about how to access the intelligence of the body Susan shares how to discover your boundaries and her unique take on consent, which she calls hot consent. We had a really great conversation about the impact of the Me Too movement and consent on men. And she shares her message for men on how to engage with consent. We talked about relationships and Susan loves working in unconventional ways and talked about how to find a relationship structure that works with who you are and your reality rather than trying to fit into one. She's writing a book called How to Court Your Inner Partner, all about self-love. So we had a really lovely chat about how to cultivate self-love, self-worth, and what self-worth and self-love looks like in action. And she's also shared some wisdom from her menopause journey. She's recently taken up burlesque, and she talks about why she took up burlesque and what that's given her and also the value of staying in curiosity and discovery during perimenopause and the menopausal times. So I hope you enjoy the 20th episode. Welcome and today I am really delighted to be joined by Susan Coates. Welcome Susan. Thank you so much Sarah Rose. Good to see oh. you. So good to see you. And um, we met a couple of years ago, didn't we, on a, a training? Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, and so when I started my podcast, I was like, I have to speak to this woman because you have such a wonderful way of articulating all that you do. So I'm really looking forward to diving into lots of topics with you today. Mm -hmm. So I'd love you to start with sharing about what you do. Yeah, so I am a sex and relationship coach. Um, I'm certified in the Somatica method. Somatica is a body-based methodology that's all about really starting with staying inside and amplifying what's happening in the body as we move through all of what's alive in our clients. And I work with individuals and couples 
Um, and as many people as can fit in my office or get on my screen. <laughs> and, um, and we really just work in a lot of discovery um, around what's possible when we actually get inside of people's desires and de-shame them, de-shame them, de-shame them and amplify what's actually alive just underneath all of those buried layers is buried treasure uh, from um, you know, sexual desire to life desire to malalignment, what's not actually working that we're getting in touch with. So I love, I love doing this kind of work and I work with, with groups as well and sometimes run some retreats and salons and groups for women, groups for men. Yeah. Lots of wonderful juicy stuff. I also teach, I also teach uh, for Somatica as well. Yeah, beautiful. Thank yeah. you. So yeah. how did you get into this work? Tell us a bit well, about the, the bright age of gestation. Uh, you know, my father was a sex therapist. So I really feel like I was born into like almost like the family business that I <laughs> <laughs> couldn't help but take on. Uh, I, if you ever saw the, the wonderful Netflix show Sex Education, it's all about a, a teen whose mother is a sex therapist and how he just ends up becoming the unofficial sort of teen coach of his peer group. Well, that was me. Um, and so all these years, uh, you know, starting from childhood and really talking about sex at the dinner table, we talked about orgasms, you know, other families in my more conservative uh, hometown in Michigan, in the United States, um, were talking about camping and uh, religion. And when they were going to church, we were talking about orgasms and, you know, premature ejaculation and things like that. So, <laughs> um, so over the years, um, I've been as a coach, um, you know, I, I went into the coaching profession in a very circuitous way but people kept coming back to me again and again and again for coaching around sexuality and intimacy even if they came for career coaching they would say well hey i hear you you also do some of this work around sex coaching is that true <laughs> so i eventually decided to uh to claim it and uh, i went through the somatica um, sex and relationship coaching training uh, about six years ago in berkeley california and that really became like the official moment I became a sex and relationship coach. Wow, thank you for sharing. So yours is quite an unusual journey because I find a lot of people get into this profession because this is an area of their life that's actually really challenging rather than one right. they're brought up to embrace. Right. <laughs> well, it's not to say that my, my life hasn't been challenging in, in intimacy and sexuality. It definitely has, um, you know, I'm human, just like the rest of us. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people come into session with me and, and have this story that I'm superhuman. And I will say uh, it can be farther from the truth, right? So I do bring my vulnerability. I bring my own human experience into my work and my sessions. Um, it's, it's surprising how this journey never ends, right? So we never get, there's never a there there, you know, it's never concluded or ended, right? It just keeps opening up new doors. Um, but I will say different from other, from other practitioners, uh, I, I came from a relatively shameless family around sexuality. We just had shame in other areas. So <laughs> it's more around intimacy and relationships. So, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, well, thank you for sharing that. And, and I think it's really, like you say, so many people imagine that if you're in this profession, you've got it nailed when it comes to sex and intimacy and you're always having oh. the best sex of your life and the best relationships <laughs> and it hangs oh up. It's just not the case. <laughs> totally. I hear you. I hear you. Yeah, so good to debunk that myth straight up. So I'd love to hear um, why do women come to see you? What sort of challenges um, are you and themes do you see in your clients? Well, I would say that women come to see me specifically because they somehow find that I've grasped an audacity that they haven't secured for themselves, that there's some way that I am able to bring a lot of permission to sexual expression, to desire, to my voice. I've been a feminist activist my whole life. And so that kind of audaciousness of voice uh, really is something that gets developed over time unless you're lucky enough to have a family that really does you know socialize their girls and a society that socializes their girls to really be leaders and be in their voice voices and that just doesn't really happen <laughs> very often unfortunately um, and so I, I think that a lot of women come to me because they, they want to engage somehow with their own audacity, with their own uh, permissiveness inside uh, to turn up the volume on what they want. Often women come to me around boundaries uh, because they realize that they're numb inside or they're feeling like shut down or that they're not really feeling like they're getting what they want in their relationships. And when they come to see me, often what comes up is that they're first of all, not claiming their desires and expressing them. They don't know how to express them and why would they, right? We're just not really taught. <laughs> We're taught to sort of, you know, sit back and wait and be, be good girls and good things come to those who wait, right? So, um, so I really do teach women how to get more vocal, how to get more in touch with their desires. And then also to be really clear where their boundaries are. I often have women come into my office who, and really, which is on my Zoom screen right now, um, but they're really like, like not even aware that where they're uncomfortable with something, where something is irritating them, where their anger shows up is actually a, a sign of where their boundaries are. And so I just often will just say the word, oh, that sounds like a boundary. <laughs> and I often get, oh, oh, I guess that is a boundary. And then there's this confidence building around boundaries that women are um, really needing to cultivate and wanting to cultivate. And uh, so once they can cultivate that self-permissiveness to engage in their boundaries, express them, organize their lives around them, in often very unconventional ways, you know, that's another piece of what I bring is this sort of unconventionality to what's possible if we get outside the box of what we were taught we have to do or be, um, then this whole world of possibility opens up. And that's where I get excited working with women because I wanna work in that realm where there's discovery, there's possibility, there's, oh my God, I am so, there's so much power in, side of me inside of the potentiality of my pleasure mm, wow and so you went tell me more about the um i love what you shared that, that 
the these anger and the irritation as uh, yeah. uh, the indicator as there's the boundary that you're not aware of that, that mm. feels really really powerful mm. and so how are you um if you're working with somebody to start to help them to get more connected with their desires more vocal where do you start with that yeah so I have a dance background I was a professional dancer for many years and um started dancing when I was five years old and uh you know, I really love this quote, uh, this phrase that Martha Graham said, she's considered the pioneer of modern dance. Um, and she said, uh, the body never lies. And so I really believe this. Uh, she studied, um, and her father actually studied animal behavior. And so a lot of her dance performances involved really studying the animal body of the human. And coming from a place of expression of that animal body. And so much of that has been so tamped down in our socialization, in our society, in our culture, just to belong, right? We can't really uh, evoke any aspect of our animal nature. So, so much of what I do when I work with women is I come back into that, to their body with them, to listen, to breathe to come into an embodied space. Often many women have kind of left the building because their bodies don't feel safe or there's a lot of trauma response, dissociation, freezing, all these ways that we so geniusly protect ourselves from the real pain of, of our life experiences. But, but it's unfortunate that the result of that is we become disembodied and we don't, then we're no longer in touch with our senses our perception, our intuition, our instinct. And so I really um, believe that the place to start with women is in the body. And then everything is through the body. And so I actually use my own body to check things out. Like I'll, I'll tune into my own triggers or my own like irritation when I'm with a woman client and I'll check it out with her and say, hey, I'm feeling this. Are you feeling this too? And uh, sometimes it's like, yes, oh my gosh, I am. Or no, it's more like this. And then we start to get into the language of the body. Um, and that's where I feel like we've been missing um, a lot of the conversation and the exploration in sexuality. Mm, yeah, um, absolutely. And so, yeah. and so some, the somatica method that you work with, because somatica is of the body, isn't it? And it's very, mm -hmm. very, very body-based. Mm -hmm. And I love what you said at the beginning about somatica of like this staying inside and amplifying that. I mean, that's such a, mm. a, a vivid picture that you can really connect with because inside is such an unfamiliar place for so many people, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I started doing contact improvisation years ago uh, it was probably 20 years ago and contact improvisation is a form that started in the eighties and uh, some people just got together and started to experiment with what would it be like to throw our bodies up against each other and see what physics does to it. And then they started getting into a deeper exploration of what happens when bodies collide, what happens when we come into a touch space. Um, and so when I started to get into that exploration of contact then I really started to open up this prime, you know, this language of primacy, right? This language of like, oh, wow, there's a whole world of information in here 
that we just haven't been tapping into. And, um, and so I just started learning a lot about intimacy through that exploration. Um, you know, what happens when you don't trust, you actually might fall on your face because mm -hmm. someone's trying to hold you, but if you're not giving them your weight completely, then you might slip off and fall down actually. So you get a real immediate uh, consequence <laughs> that, that informs you of what happens relationally when you trust, don't trust, have boundaries, don't have boundaries, communicate, don't communicate. Um, yeah. Yeah, thank you. And, and one of the things that you, um, I know you talk about in it, you have your own take on sort of consent moving on from boundaries. Mm -hmm. So I'd love you to speak about that and how you're yeah. different than what's been taught mm. out there. Yeah. So when I teach consent, well, when I, I think, I don't know about you, but I, I was really turned off uh, in my body. I just actually had a physical irritation when I started to hear some of the, um, you know, the conversations about consent being about, you know, men asking women and women almost like holding on to the cookie jar <laughs> of sexuality. And, and then men say, can I have a cookie? And then women say, oh, well, <clears throat> maybe you can have a cookie or I'll give you half a cookie or I don't want to give you a cookie right now, but no matter what was happening there, it felt like, well, why are women holding the cookie jar? Why are we managing a yes or a no? And, and it almost felt like I was still in this passive stance as long as I'm holding that cookie jar. And then I'm sort of managing everything that's coming to me instead of going out and seeking what I desire, claiming what I want, expressing what it is which I really call hot consent. I, I really feel like that's the, <laughs> that's the redefinition of consent for an empowered woman is really about, um, it's about self-authorization, right? So it's like, it's like, what do I, what do I desire when I'm uncomfortable? What do I do? You know, um, how, do I express it? And, uh, and a lot of, you know, a lot of what we teach and, and I really love uh, what the Somatica, um, the folks at Somatica, Celeste and Danielle, um, who founded the Somatica Method, their approach to consent conversations is incredible. And I use it, uh, which is not to say there's a cookie cutter approach mm -hmm. to consent, uh, but that it's actually a conversation around how we do consent. How do we know we're a yes? How do we know we're a no? Uh, for some people like me, if I were to be asked at every escalation all the time, can I do this? Would you like to do that? Can we do this? I would actually lose, potentially lose some of my flow in the experience or feel irritated. But there are certain things I do want before escalation. And so when I work with clients, every single client's different. Um, and so when that conversation happens between two people, what emerges is, oh, well, I like consent this way. Mm. And then here's how you'll know I'm a yes, or it might be hard for you to know I'm, I'm a no, because I might not say it. And so we might need to slow this down so that we're safer. 
So it's, it's really about getting more creative about how we do consent, where we actually meet more intimately inside of what's happening between these, these bodies, these people. Hmm. I love that hot consent. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, speaking um, to a number of male friends and and, and clients, you know, uh, there's this fear of approaching a woman of getting it wrong and all of Mm. these things which means that a number of men just totally hold back from the situation oh my gosh yes is that something you've seen Mm -hmm. yeah I I run a group called the men's desire club and when we first started to convene before the pandemic uh what shocked me was that the men one by one as they spoke revealed that they didn't actually even get the memo that they could have boundaries. They had no awareness that they could have boundaries, that that wasn't for them, that boundaries were for women and that men had to suck up whatever they got. And um, and so my question was, well, how could men understand consent? They don't even get to have their own boundaries. Yeah. No wonder they suck at it. <laughs> you know, no wonder they, they have challenges with it, you know? So I have a lot of compassion for men around that. And then also, yes, like with the Me Too movement, which was all these movements are so necessary, right? They're they're wake up calls that say, this is where we're actually at and this is not okay, right? And for men on the other side of that, you know, the fear of approaching really uh, became amplified. Mm -hmm. And a lot of men who come to me, I mean, every day I get this, you know, like, I, I'm afraid to approach a woman. I don't know how to approach a woman. I'm afraid I'm going to be a creep. It's often the men who are great at consent, who are afraid they're the creeps out there. <laughs> you know, The ones who aren't really in a consensual space with women. Yeah. So there is this kind of shut shutdown of yeah. desire for men, because now it's like shaming. It's, there's a lot of shame around even having desire because there's almost this internalized sense of predation, Mm. you know? And for a man listening, who might be that man who really relates Mm. to this, what would you say to him? Yeah, I would say, yes, you know, it's great that you care about consent. You know, we want you to to care about consent, you know? (laughs) And we don't want to lose you in the process. We need you online. We need your body online. If you're going to be having sex with us, you know, or engaging with us intimately or in a sensual experience, um, we, we actually need your body online. And so when, when you shut down, we don't get to experience you. And so the best thing you can do, if you want to really engage in conscious consent as a man is to learn how to actually get in your own body work with practitioners, learn more about your own body, learn about your sexuality, learn where your boundaries actually are. Because I think you're really going to understand on the flip side, what's happening for women and what you might need to do to really engage in consent in an aligned way. Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. I love that we have this conversation about this because I think it's so important Mm -hmm. for everybody to hear this yeah, sort of everybody. This dynamic. and um yeah and I really love the 
the, the, the big takeaway for me is what you shared around. It's such an individual experience and we can learn mm -hmm. about consent, but how can we have conversations about what it looks like for me and how mm -hmm. do I experience it? And, and, and that seems, um, yeah, I love that. Yeah, I, I will. I do want to just add that we don't really have a great uh, culture of repair in our society. Mm -hmm. um, and we do have a culture of, of penalty. And so th I think that that doesn't help us because boundaries will get crossed. I do want to normalize that boundaries do get crossed. Often that's how we know where our boundaries are as they get crossed. And we say, oh, something didn't feel good there. Oh, I think I have a boundary. So I think we also need a lot of compassion around the process of boundary setting, consent building, um, and that when boundaries are crossed, um, that unless it's an egregious violation, right? Or a, a, yeah, like a sexual assault or things that are really violating um, a, a clear no, or um, even a, a you know, presumed no, I think that repair conversations can be so incredibly revolutionary to this discussion and they just don't happen. Um, so I would really encourage people, especially men to start to learn repair processes and how to actually engage with the women in their lives who they feel like they may be breaching boundaries with to actually have a real repair conversation. Mm -hmm. And, um, because we just aren't taught how to do that. So why would we know? <laughs> yeah. But but I think it could really add a lot because then we have less fear of conflict. We have less fear of that moment when it is going to happen. We're ready for it because we know on the other side of that, that we could restore with the person. Yeah, absolutely. And also yeah. takes the shame, less shame and less shame less at all of it. So. Yeah. And greater intimacy, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, no, thank you for mentioning that. So you mentioned um, around one of your, I could see you totally lit, light up when you talked about this is around unconventional unconventionality and working around that. So I'd love you to speak to that and tell us what excites you and what sort of things you work with. Yeah, uh, so people call me a third way queen. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I could be any other way. Uh, you know, I grew up as a nudist. I grew up in a very outside the box family. Um, my mom was the town artist who was censored in art shows. My dad was the town sex therapist who was considered a creep. You know, we grew up in a very unconventional situation as a family. Um, and becoming an adult, I really stayed with the unconventionality because for me, it was all about, well, what's my individuality say and how does form actually follow function for me? So form in relationships is usually the box that we're given, right? This is the form. This is what you do. You do monogamy, you know, <laughs> you do it this way. Here's the linear progression. Here are all the boxes you need to check off. And unfortunately that leads to a lot of disempowerment for a lot of people. And for me, my question is more about, well, what if the form followed the function of what's actually working here? What's actually alive here? What's thriving? What works between these two people, you know? And so 
the unconventional unconventionality of it is really about being open to the unknown and to like discovering what's possible if we can release the box, at least some what, maybe release our strong hold on it you know? <laughs> and open ourselves up to what's actually happening in the relationship. Because that's actual intimacy is what's actually happening. What's actually real often doesn't get reflected in the box. Mm. And so if we can listen long enough, the form does, you know, emerge. And that is unconventional because it's going to be unique for each and every individual. And some people in the relationship aren't going to be on board with your version of unconventional. And you're going to need to find ways to bridge if you can <laughs> to meet each other halfway, you know, or take turns meeting each other. Um, or it just might not work out, but at least you're being true to your individuality and who you really are. And you're communicating that rather than just this sort of way that we just in an unspoken way get handed this box and we never really even talk about it, but we just start bringing expectations into the relationship, uh, which just leads to a lot of disappointment. Mm. Yeah. Could you give an example of a, of a client that you worked with and mm. share a story around this? Yeah. Yeah. So I had a client a few years ago, uh, she'd gone through a divorce um, and she came in pretty distraught. She was feeling really disempowered, um, really abandoned by her husband um, who immediately went out and fell in love and got married again after they divorced. And they had two kids, two young kids. And um, she came in and when we started to get inside of, you know, we, we had to sit a lot with her disappointment, her grief, her feelings of abandonment, you know, all the things that were, were needing to be addressed first, you know, some safety wound. But once we moved through that and got in touch more with, well, where actually, where are you at actually? Like, what's your desire want now? She said, well, I want to be a slut. I want to have a lot of sex. I've been with the same guy for all this time. Is it okay to want that? <laughs> and I said, oh yeah, it's definitely okay. How do you feel about it? You know? And so we worked session by session to just kind of open the box and de-shame, de-shame, de-shame her sluttiness, which was really just her just wanting to be in her full expression as a erotic woman. And so she started to experiment and she started doing things she never thought she would do. And she'd come back into session and say, oh, I did this thing. Like I went to this party and it was this whole theme. And I didn't even like know that I would do that, but like there I was. And I had this great makeout session with this guy. And so, um, and then I would reflect back to her, you know, like, look how lit up you are, you know? Look at how much you're shining right now. Just feel it. Take in the glow. And she just really started to claim it and follow that path. And uh, so that, that is the path of the unconventional one, right? So for women, it's extra hard, you know, with our socialization. It's just like, look sexy, be, be amazing, 
but don't be slutty. You know, these, a lot of these, um, contradictory expectations, um, are a lot of what we need to unpack in order for, you know, the unconventional woman to emerge (laughs) from within. Absolutely. And do you see a shift with what happens, um, with, um, uh, with, with younger generations coming through with this? Yeah, I think what I see with younger generations is first of all, a lot of younger generations are not buying in to gender socialization, to sexual orientation socialization. They're not buying into even sex as a uh, expectant aspect of relationships. Uh, A lot of the things that used to be fused together, almost like vertebra that get fused together, they, they impede movement. And so a lot of younger generations, I really feel are, are deconstructing relationships as we know it and sexuality as we know it. And they're taking, they're taking the roof off the house. They're saying, well, wait a minute. What if, what if I get to determine what sex even is to me? What if I get to determine if I'm even open to a dialogue about my gender? A lot of younger folks I'm working with now don't even aren't even open to talking about gender. They don't even associate with gender. They associate with their inner wildness. Mm. So there's this rejection of socialized norms of the conventional that I am so inspired by. Honestly, Sarah Rose, I'm learning so much from newer generations and I have to share my vulnerability with them as I teach them because I'm learning uh, you know, at the speed of light, like <laughs> how much they're, they're showing me, you know, that even I have these um, preconceived stories, like I'm still getting out of my own boxes. So I really feel like, like younger audiences, you know, younger clients, people out in the world of newer generations are really voices to be amplified and to be listened to because mm-hmm. they're onto something pretty amazing. Mm. Yeah, yeah I love the way that you talk about they just don't put those things together in the way that we've been so deeply socialized um so yeah it's exciting so mm. so yeah so what else there's so many things I wanted to ask you oh you're writing a book so I'd love to hear about that tell me about that mm. so yes I am writing a book and it's I think it's the book that's writing me as well you know like as I write it it's writing me it's it's asking me to explore different things more Uh, but this book is really about a lifelong practice um, of courting your inner partner and this started for me when I was five I didn't get the memo that my life mattered and I knew that by the time I turned eight I was probably not going to want to be on the planet. Like it was in, in this place of the dire need to have conveyed to me that my life mattered. And uh, it's like, it's vulnerable to share about um, even now. And somehow, <laughs> I don't know if it was all the books that were around me uh, or that I got to read at a young, young age, but but around six or seven, I started to, uh, really think about it. Like, you know, I'm actually going to have to turn this around. 
And what, what am I going to have to do? And I was one of those kids who had to learn how to parent myself um, for all the reasons. And so I started to invite myself into explorations of movement. And then when I was old enough to know what a diary was, I asked for a diary for my birthday. I got 10. And so I started writing and then I started dancing and writing and dancing and writing. And what emerged was this inner courtship that actually courted me into my life. And it wasn't something that I preconceived or had this pre-engineered idea that, oh, this equation will get me there, but it got me there. And it's something that I have, have accessed since and throughout. Like I still write every morning, 6 a.m. You'll see me. If you see me at my home, I'm writing in my diary and I'm drinking a cappuccino. <laughs> and I usually have uh, a look of comfort. Um, so there's a way that inviting ourselves into life um, is something that can always be available to us, whether people around us are available or not, whether we have partnership that's available to really being there for us or not. It becomes this resilience, this band of resilience around our existence that, that if we can lean into you know, and listen to what we need, what we desire, and actually respond to it as if we were our inner lover, partner, parent, friend, then we actually almost create this, um, you know, this uh, guidebook for others on how to love us, you know, it becomes really clear. And so one year I was um, in a bad breakup, and it was about my birthday. And if any of you listeners out there know about like what it's like to be, you know, recently broken up on your birthday, you know, that there can be a lot of loneliness and abandonment. And I had a pity party going on and I thought, well, wait a minute, do I want this kind of birthday? And I thought, no. And so I started talking to myself uh, and I said, well, what would Susan want for her birthday? And then I just listened. And then I said, oh, Susan would want to wake up in the morning and not have those dishes on the counter. So I got the dishes cleaned up and Susan would actually want sticky notes with love, words of love strewn all over her house when she got up. And so I wrote on the sticky notes and then it got like louder and louder. It was like, well, and another thing and another thing. And it became this really huge orchestrated event. And I woke up the next morning and the first thing I saw wasn't my recollection of my recent breakup. My first thing I saw was a sticky note to the right of me saying, you're amazing. <laughs> and, and then another thing happened and another thing. And then I took myself out to dinner and I wined and dined myself. I took myself home, made mad, passionate love to myself. Um, all that's to say that this is really what this book is about. Um, it's a lot of what I teach my clients about how to really create resilience in their love affair with self. Um, a lot of people don't know how to love themselves. And a lot of people don't even know what that word means when it comes to loving yourself. What does that actually mean? How does it show up? Because it not, it isn't necessarily uh, spinning out in, you know, um, self-indulgence. It might be indulgence, but it might be, you know, 
actually doing your taxes earlier because you care about your energy and how you want to conserve your energy so you don't get blown out when it becomes tax day, you know? Um, <clears throat> so this, this book is really all about learning how to love yourself and learning how then to create that, that sort of guidebook for the world. Mm, wow. I, I love the term in a partner because I've never heard anyone use that before. Mm. And it feels very different than sort of in a lover mm. because it feels it's, it's in a lover and all the other stuff mm, that goes mm -hmm. with it as well. And it just, yeah. um, and, and so w when you um, sort of, yeah, get, I'd love you to hear you sort of speak about maybe doing the tax returns earlier. What else do you see self-love as looking like? Mm. <clears throat> Great question. Um, yeah, self-love is, um, you know, not leaving yourself behind in romantic sexual engagement. Uh, it's actually carrying yourself with you into all those relational spaces with others. So what often happens is people kind of leave their inner partner and they close the door and then they go out to be with other people. And then they sort of give themselves away to other people. They overgive, they, you know, cross their own boundaries or allow their boundaries to be crossed. I actually encourage that it's the most important step is to bring your inner partner with you into all of those situations. So if someone isn't treating you the way you want to be treated, that you can like know, you can trust that you're still there for you. You're always going to be there for you. And so it's not such a drop, is it? If you already have your relationship of primacy with yourself. And uh, so a lot of people who come to me just haven't really learned that. And why would we We're, you know, as women, we're taught to be comfort for other people. We're taught to think of others first. It's very selfish, right. To think of yourself uh, first. And, you know, as a mother, <laughs> I do have to think of my son first. Sometimes, sometimes you're just, you know, <laughs> you, you might be changing a diaper while you yourself are ready to go throw up. Like you're just like dealing with all the, the messiness of, of, and the chaos of your child needing you when you also need so much. Um, but it's really, you know, it's really about like in my work, it's really about teaching people how to be with themselves. Like for example, in sex to even to self-pleasure on a first sexual encounter to show your partner, this is how I love to touch myself. This is how I want to be touched. I've had so I've had countless couples come to me and the woman is irritated, complaining that she's not being touched the way she wants to be touched. And the partners, he keeps saying, well, but I don't really understand what she wants. I keep doing the things she's asking me to do. And then I say, well, have you shown him? And often the response is, well, no why would I, you know, that's for him to do. <clears throat> and so it's interesting, right? That there's this disconnect. So I, I think a lot of the permission giving 
and the amplification is that you are actually in that lovership with yourself first and foremost. And whatever you share with your partner, you're showing out. You're just showing out how much you love yourself, how good you feel with yourself while you're with that partner. How amazing it is to be you experiencing what you're experiencing and showing it out. And then inviting your partner in to enjoy the morsels, the abundance, the spilling over of the cup, right? (laughs) Right? It's so different than like what we're taught. We're taught, well, like, oh, I didn't get what I needed or wanted. And no, I didn't speak up, but maybe I'll get it next time. You know, we're really taught as women to just sort of be thankful for what you're given, right? At the end of the day, if there are any scraps left. Yeah. I know, and all the assumptions, and you know, I've heard, you know, well, he, he should just know what to do, and if he doesn't, just know. And what does that say about our love? And all these stories, um, stories that come with yeah. it. And I really love that you talk about this. Like, then becomes, you know, when you love yourself in that way, it's a guidebook for other people. Mm-hmm. And there's that. Have you heard of that quote from Rudy Francisco? Um, mm. And it says. Um, if I love myself something like if I love myself so fiercely that when others see me they just know how it is to be done what what, how to do it Mm. you know just from the way I eat from the way I speak from the way I look after myself take rest or ask for what I want and stuff and I oh that quote's just just utterly beautiful and it's exactly what you're saying you become the guidebook and it's just so clear this is who this person is and how to be treated and and all of that so it's amazing for someone listening who maybe feel this feels far away from where they're at or they're like actually I'd just love to just to go deeper with this and there may be one or two things that you could suggest as places people could explore and play with yeah um you know one thing I like to ask is uh if you could wake up in the morning and just snap your finger and everything is just as you want it and whatever experience you're wanting to have something different in what would what would happen just as a reflection even if you don't know everything that would happen like what's something that you would love to see happen if you woke up in that magical place snapped your fingers and there you are (laughs) and see if you can just lean into your imagination just a little bit and it can be so challenging, you know, we're, <laughs> we live in a world of the mind, but the mind is often needing to control circumstances and outcomes. So it's really a creative act of seeing if you can just get into a creative zone, even if you have to conjure it by remembering a moment when you were a child in your creative creativity, in your imagination, and then going to that place and starting from there. And then awakening to this magic moment when you get what you actually want. Um, I think that could be a great way to start. Another great way to start, you know, if you really want support is to reach out and get it. A lot of people feel shame about going and seeing a sex coach or a sex therapist or, you know, someone to help with these things. I think especially men are socialized not to ask for directions. Um, But I really want to normalize, you know, 
the importance of having guides in our lives, having resources, how important it is. We wouldn't say to a child, good luck riding that bike <laughs> that you've never ridden. We would say, of course, we're going to go up and we're going to like help them along. Right. So why would it be any different for us? You know, we're not taught how to do these things. In essence, a lot of us are walking around as grown adults, but like children inside who just don't really know how to try something different. We just haven't been taught. So I would say lean in to the friendly, all the friendly, friendly, warm, loving sex coaches that are out here. <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we're a growing bunch. <laughs> we really are. There are more and more of us out here crusading to, you know, make a, a world where people can be more themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And, mm -hmm. and you mentioned the word sort of resilience and, and so for uh, somebody listening who would like to become more resilient, what would you share? What would you say to them? Mm. You know, what's coming to me right now is just something that's uh, really alive in me right now. I've been dealing a lot with worthiness and the difference between worthiness and performance. We're such a performative culture and I really want to like separate. I want to put a wall between performance and worthiness. Like doesn't matter how badly you perform, you are worthy. You your life has value. <laughs> um, and the act of worthiness is really about developing worthiness inside. I think resilience has a lot to do with self-worth and building self-worth so because otherwise you know when someone strikes you down it's harder to get up right because we don't even know are we even worthy of getting up resilience is about oh yeah I have this like band of self-love around me that is impenetrable and noticing do you let people in to that band to determine your worth do they get to sever the band of worth in you? Do they get to decide if that band is strong around you? And if so, you might consider, you know, relegating them out a bit further mm -hmm. energetically from your body, from your system. I know that I'm getting a little bit, you know, into the intricacies of like energetics in the body, but I just think of it as a band of, of worthiness around the self. And so what are the things that build your worth? I was actually writing in my diary at 6 a.m. about this uh, just yesterday about these are all the things I did in the last year to create that band of worth around me. And it was a really long list, actually. I did quite a few things. Um, one of the things I did was I performed burlesque because I, you know, I had gone through menopause and I... Uh, was in that place of like, okay, I just turned 50. What kind of message am I going to receive from this? Am I going to wait to get the messages of society to determine if my life matters after 50, after menopause? No. So I decided to like go do burlesque. It's like, well, I used to be a dance performer. I'm a sex coach. I just turned 50. Of course I have to do burlesque. <laughs> and I have to say it, it created this uh, energetic of worth that I just needed to give myself and show out to the audience. 
who was cheering me on and reminding me of how good I felt about myself on stage. And so whatever it is for you, right? Like if you're listening, it's like, for you, it might be different for me, for you, it might be all worthiness, you know, is about making sure I cook and slow down when I cook. Um, I know that there's like, I'm not speaking a lot about resilience directly, but I do think that that builds resilience is like when we do the things that, that give our life the sense of value. Yeah. Because then we have so much to turn to. Like we, we might stumble and fall, but we're, then we're going to get up and we're going to open the refrigerator and slow cook our meal and really add the ingredients that taste so delectable. Um, it could be anything. It could be really whatever gives your life value and meaning. I, I really do feel that's what gives you resilience. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And also like you shared that, that decoupling of performance and worthiness, mm -hmm. because for so many, and I've been there myself, it's like if I went, if I had a relationship that broke down or a date that didn't go well, and you right. know, that would just be like another chip off my mm. worthiness block mm. <laughs> oh. rather than you know that's we're not meant to be and, and I'm still amazing and you know it's a very different place to sort of um steer your ship through the world from so mm -hmm. I think that's really vital what you shared and yeah and it's a practice worthiness is like a muscle isn't it that we exercise and build and grow mm. and strengthen and mm. um until mm -hmm. we have that like you share that unsort of penetrable band of worthiness and self-love so I can't wait to read your book and for this to come oh, out so. thank you so much you're going to give me some added inspiration to finish this book <laughs> are you nearly there I'm halfway there okay amazing yeah. and is there anything else you'd like to share about your menopause journey and how that's mm. affected you and your identity as a as a woman or anything you'd love to share Mm, yeah. So for me, you know, menopause really arrived at my doorstep at a very challenging moment. Uh, I think a lot of things that were no longer working for me were crumbling beneath my feet. I don't think that that's unique to me. I think that on some level uh, is a part of the process of going through that portal. Um, I was told by a an alternative, my, my, my doctor is kind of a, quite an alternative medicine type, you know, he's almost like a therapist and an MD in one. And he said to me, he said, you know, menopause is like the second puberty. Mm -hmm. yeah. And at first I felt some shame around that. Like, oh, I'm not, I'm not there. <laughs> but then the more I started to feel into it, the more I really felt that chrysalis, that sort of going into that gooey space again of like, who am I actually um, really releasing what's no longer there, emerging what's to come and not even knowing what it is while it's emerging and being okay with not knowing what it is. Um, but it really, it really rocked my world in some very uncomfortable ways, not just for me, but for people around me. And I was in a relationship that was very stuck and dysfunctional and the things that I tolerated before, I just tolerated no more. And it became very uncomfortable 
you know, <laughs> all around. And that discomfort is kind of like shook the foundation underneath me. And it got to the point where I didn't even know what, what was still standing. <laughs> and so there's that scary part. Uh, it feels to me kind of like childbirth, you know, there's this, these life portals that we go through and there's that part of the portal in childbirth. It's like, I call childbirth, like a portal of life and death. Um, but there's that moment of like disbelief that I, I can't do this. I can't remember what the word for it is, but it's the disbelief that this is even possible. Like, I can't do this. There's no way it's, it's the confrontation of death in a way, right? It's the death card if you're into tarot. And if you can embrace it and breathe in childbirth, then you move through it and you can, the baby comes out right? more readily. Um, yeah. And so for me, it was about embracing the death card. That mm. I am not going to be on the other side of this, who I was going in. And I think burlesque reminded me of the parts that I'm taking with me, mm. <laughs> that there are things to take with us, right? On the journey that we do want to claim, we do want to uh, continue to integrate into the future. And in contrast to the stories we're told about how we should be once we turn 50, 55, 60, 65, 70, 80, <laughs> So I think it really opened me up. I think burlesque was like a, a symbol of that for me. Yeah. I like the possibility. Once I was on stage with a hundred people watching me and cheering me on, and I was just seizing hold of that moment with my teeth and my claws <laughs> and my inner, my inner uh, yumminess. That was the moment for me that I conveyed that message to myself. This is really inner partner work for me. It's like, I did that for myself, you know, and, and that really spoke a lot to me about what I'm going to bring myself post-menopause. So, and I do get a lot of women who come to me who are going through menopause and are scared and their libidos are really dropping and there are all kinds of things happening and, um, and the body just keeps changing. And so I think I would just encourage women going through menopause to stay in discovery mode and stay with their curiosity, stay with wonderment as if this is a body, this is like a butterfly that's going to emerge from this yes, gooey, yes, uncomfortable chrysalis that it might be in right now. But like, look forward to that butterfly. What kinds of wings do they have? You know, like uh, what's the design of your future self? Mm, yeah that's such beautiful advice stay in wisdom uh, stay in discovery stay in curiosity because I think this is the point where so many women shut down and you know yeah. I think that's the point I see that in my like my mom's generation are so you know and so many women still do shut down because what works mm -hmm. before is not working anymore yeah and but if we can stay in that place of what's here what's possible what do I want to follow what threads feel alive then yeah it's a whole different experience so mm. thank you for sharing yeah. and gift to yourself of burlesque as a gift to all of us as well <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know it's thank like you. for the women listening it's like what's going to be mm. your burlesque equivalent 
what can mm. you go out and claim for yourself and mm-hmm. you know for me just before the first lockdown I was going to climb three mountains in England that was going to be my thing in 24 hours wow and it was like a real challenge to go and do this and and I haven't and I'm looking for something else to fill that space if anyone listening has got any ideas but I really mm. wanted I really want to do something really physical as a challenge that really stretches me yeah. Uh, my body and and I think having these sort of rituals for ourselves that mark these transitions is so empowering so yeah I'm so you. curious where that's going to take you where you're going to take it yeah curious I'll let you know sounds good so uh, (laughs) to wrap up I'm conscious of time and um any final messages for for women around you know the women globally with you know we're at this 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 such pivotal time in history and and you know you're doing this incredible work around sexual empowerment erotic empowerment so yeah any final messages around that yeah I would I would just say um you know, if any of you were around in the eighties where we had those big receiver dials, you know, that you could turn up or down the volume, (laughs) I would say, take that big dial and, you know, the dial of society and socialization and the messages were given and advertising and the news and, you know, even uh, legislation that's getting passed and turn that dial all the way down so that you can turn the dial all the way up on your body and what it's saying on the inner truth that's being shown in your irritation, in your longing, in your vulnerability, in your desire, in your boundaries, all of it, because all of the information for a really powerful, pleasurable, engaged, enlivened life, I feel like is right in there. And so if you're confused, if you're uncertain, if you're looking for answers, I would suggest that you not look outside as much as you look inside. That's what I would say. That's a really (laughs) gorgeous place to finish. Yeah. And as this is a sexy life podcast, what does living a sexy life mean to you? Mm, I love that question, Sarah Rose. That's beautiful. A sexy life for me means following my impulses around what I'm curious about and indulging in making space to explore what I'm curious about. And be delighted, inviting myself to be delighted, to enjoy every minute of it, even if it's a struggle, noticing what I might enjoy about that struggle. Um, So yeah, living a sexy life is a, it's almost like a never ending love affair with myself Mm. that I just engage in from moment to moment. (laughs) Yum, yum, yum. Fantastic. So gorgeous. (laughs) The lovemaking never ends. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. So I'll put all your website in the show notes. And where else can people find you online? Where are you active on social media? Yeah, so you can find me on Facebook. I have a page there. I I am on Instagram. There is a TikTok channel as well. Susan Sex Coach. 
And um, yeah, and you can find me at, on my website at susancoatscoaching.com. And uh, there's also a contact page in there that you can reach out to. Amazing. And it's Coats with an E, just in case anyone's yes, listening. Yes, Coats with an E. Yes. You can also find me on the Somatica Institute website. I'm also there as faculty member and practitioner. Amazing. Well, thank you so mm. much for your juiciness and your you. gorgeousness and your mm. just embodied wisdom and love of this work and all that thank you do. Thank really you so much for it. amplifying these conversations. I really, really love it. It's really important. Thank you for listening to the Love, Sex and Intimacy podcast with me, Sarah Rose Bright. I support women and couples across the globe to truly enjoy sex and pleasure and to create or deepen intimate relationships that are passionate and purposeful, happy and healthy, and I'd love to support you. You can book a complimentary call via my website at sarahrosebright.com to find out if my approach is right for you. And check out my website for information about my one-to-one coaching programs and any current workshops, group programs and retreats that I'm running wherever and whenever you are listening, wishing you a beautiful day.